Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Welcome to another episode of the Open Apple Podcast. This is show number eight for October 2011, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Ken Gagney. How are you today, Ken? Fine, Mike, and I'm here with my co-host, you. Yay! Now, this is show number eight, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm, it is. We're mentioning that because why, Ken? <laughs> because I messed up. Uh, the last time we had a show, which was show number seven, I introduced it as show number five. <sighs> As if we had just obliterated two months' worth of work. Bunch of amateurs around here, I tell you. I tell you. You know, the, the day we start getting paid for this, I'll start putting some effort in. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> in all seriousness, uh, this is the first time that you and I have done a show in a while, and it's, I think, the first one since you've been back in Massachusetts. Yeah, it's been an interesting summer. This is the first time I've used this rig since we spoke to Brian Weiser in June. In July, you and I were in Open Apple Rocky Mountain Studio together, not speaking to anybody. In August, we were there again, Docky and David Schmenk. And then last month, uh, you and I just briefly introduced our Kansas Fest session. So that wasn't a full or regular episode of Open Apple. But now we are back and using the uh, formula that worked so well for us before. Yeah. So if we're a little rusty, we apologize. <laughs> so how has your September been? Busy. Busy. There's been a lot of work. I, in fact, just got home a few minutes before we started recording this podcast. How's adjusting to, to life back in Massachusetts? I uh, haven't had much time to adjust. It's been busy. Uh, we had some Kansas Fest news that just broke today that we'll be talking about later. We put out another issue of Juice GS, which we can talk about later. And we're recording Open Apple, which we're talking about right now. So, yeah, there's been plenty to keep my mind off everything else. Well, that's good. That's good. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Sometimes it's important to focus on other things. Yes, it's important to not have time to think or breathe. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> However, on one of my weekends in September, I was in a rush to get out the door, so I just threw some clothes in a suitcase for the weekend, not thinking about uh, what I was wearing. The next day, I found myself wearing my War Games t-shirt, which you know of because I got the idea to buy one after seeing you wear it. <laughs> yes, that infamous picture. So I was not wearing this shirt in a, a geek crowd, and they asked me, what is that shirt? What does it mean? So I had to explain it, and it must have been on my mind more than I realized, because that night I actually dreamt about war games. I dreamt that Vince Briel, creator of the Replica One, a Apple One clone, had gone on to create a Whopper clone. From the movie War Games. Yes, the machine that houses the software known as Joshua. You could buy your own desktop-sized clone of Whopper and run all the same software, including tic-tac-toe, global thermonuclear war. It was great. Just all that stuff for just like a hundred bucks. Wow. So I could actually start a, a nuclear war with a, for a hundred dollars. I'm not sure if maybe you'd have to like go online and find somebody else with a Whopper clone and start a war with them. Oh, that's not as much fun. Well, still, I, I think for the, the price that, you know, this imaginary Vince Briel was charging, it's still a good deal. Well, for an imaginary computer, I'd be happy to pony up an imaginary $100. <laughs> Hi, I'm Bob Bishop, and you're listening to the Open Apple Podcast. As is tradition, whenever we can and are able on Open Apple, we have a guest with us this month, yet another Apple II celebrity who we are all excited to speak with. That gentleman this month is Kelvin Sherlock. Hi, Kelvin. Hello. Hi, Kelvin. 
don't know that I'm actually a celebrity. You are now. I am now. <laughs> That's right. So, Kelvin, what is it about you that puts you on this show? You're an Apple II user for how long now? I believe it was December of 1987. It was an early Christmas present. Uh, my father bought a nice Apple II GS computer with one megabyte of RAM. Nice. May I ask how old you were at that time? I don't know. <laughs> what year is it? <laughs> yes, you may ask. I was 10 years old. Was that your first personal computer? Yes. Uh, yep. Yeah, at school, there were occasional Commodore 64s and a couple couple 2Es, which we weren't allowed to use because they ran AppleWorks. Why weren't you allowed to use AppleWorks? You know, I don't know. <laughs> it's interesting that your first computer is a 2GS. Most people we've had on this show started with some sort of 8-bit machine, whether or not it was an Apple II, and they either stuck with that or they upgraded to the 2GS or something, but you went right for the 16-bit model. Yep, I started at 16 bits and never looked back. And what have you been doing with that machine since you got it all those years ago? Oh, games, homework, some programming, lots of programming, lots of goofing off with it. A lot of fun things. Was the Apple II the machine that introduced you to programming? Yes, yeah, you could say that. My first real introduction to programming was uh, through a bulletin board I was able to uh, connect to at the local community college, and I uh, stumbled across some text files that uh, gave an introduction to uh, Pascal programming. Hmm. So I read through those and said, well, this is great, but what do we, how do you make a real program? Mm -hmm. So then my first real, real programming I guess where it all clicked was in college. I did read through the Touch of Applesoft booklet, of course. I think uh, that was mandatory reading. And uh, entered a lot of programs from uh, Insider, most of which didn't work. <laughs> wow. What, was that your fault or Insider's? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably a data entry error or a picnic problem. Mm, problem. Right. <laughs> picnic. Uh, similar to an ID10T error. I believe so. You mentioned college. Were you a computer science major? No, I had a minor in computer science. My major was in biomedical technology, although since then I've done a lot with computer science and nothing with biomedical technology. As long as you get the degree in the end, that's all that matters. That's right. The degree and the job and the debt. So what sort of computer stuff do you do nowadays? Very, very boring computer stuff. It's no fun. That's why I uh, <laughs> like to come home and do more exciting things. Like what? Mostly lately I've been doing auxiliary programs that are, say, not on the Apple II, but they're Apple II related, mm -hmm. like uh, Profuse, which lets Macintosh or Linux computers read Apple II Protos disks, mm -hmm. and some other projects which are incomplete or otherwise not yet done. I think I've gotten a sneak peek at a few of those, and I can't wait for them to be done. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> But I think the programming project for which you may best be known among this community is G. Shizen. Yes, that's possibly true. I think Silver Platter is my favorite, most important, but yeah, it's, it's a good game. Mike, have you played G. Shizen? I have quite a bit. Yeah, it's, it's a tile-based game that is very addictive, partly because as soon as you finish one round, it doesn't display your score or your time or say congratulations or give you any sort of a prompt or a dialogue. It just immediately refreshes the board with a whole new puzzle. So in a sense, the game never ends. You're just there playing round after round after round. It's evil. When I was uh, developing it, that was the hardest part. You know, I had to <laughs> test it, and then you know, two hours later, oops, <laughs> I have to actually start working on it again. 
Now, did you actually devise the concept for G-Shizen, or did you just implement it on the Apple II? Uh, no, it was uh, an implementation, but I, I didn't come up with the concept. The concept came from uh, K-Shizen, which uh, was part of the KDE desktop uh, running under Linux. So in this case, K doesn't stand for Kelvin? No, it stands for K. <laughs> Are you related at all to the iShizen project, which is Shizen on the iPad or the iPhone? Oh, yes, uh, you could say that. Uh, Sheppy, Eric Shepard, encouraged me to make a, uh iPhone version. It's a natural fit, I think. Uh, I think touch works a lot better than mouse. One thing I was um, interested in but never tried was hooking up a touch screen to the uh, 2GS so you could use a touch instead of the mouse. I believe there was a touch screen available. Hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, me either. I might be making that up. <laughs> and you also wrote Flashizen, right? Uh, yes, that's a Flash-based version. Are you going to convert that to HTML5? You probably not, but maybe. You never know. Now, are there any other versions of this game floating around that you're affiliated with, like for the Mac or BOS or anything? I thought about a Mac version. I haven't done it yet. There was, yes, indeed, a, a BOS version. Uh, I had a Windows version that never went anywhere. At one point, I did write a version in Java that never went anywhere either. So, yeah, a few others. Once you do one, you know, it's easy to do the rest. Then it's just no fun anymore. <laughs> exactly. So odds are, if anybody has ever played any version of Shizen anywhere, it was probably one of yours. It's possible, yes. <laughs> now, Shizen skyrocketed to popularity in the Apple II community when Max Jones introduced it to the Kansas Fest crowd as an annual contest that he hosted. Did you have any involvement in that? I did donate money one year, mm -hmm. uh, but that was the extent of my involvement. Now, unfortunately, you have never actually been to Kansas Fest to participate in that contest. Yes, that's true. Um, I would embarrass myself, I'm sure. So what is it that's kept you away from Kansas Fest all these years? You know, I often think about going and sort of plan on it, but then other stuff comes up, like working or moving or working, unfortunately. Because speaking of moving, even though you've never been to Kansas Fest, you are known to me. You and I went to the Vintage Computer Festival East 2.0 in Burlington, Massachusetts back in 2004. Yes, we did. That was uh, very exciting times. The uh, Apple II seemed a little underrepresented, um, seemed to more focus on the 1940s through the mid-70s. It was quite interesting. Yeah, having just come from VCFE 7.0, I think the computers that the show showcases has gotten a little bit older. But what I remember most about VCF 2.0 was just how crowded my apartment was that weekend. <laughs> that was pretty wild, yes. <laughs> yeah, it, it was you, me, Ryan Suinaga, Andy Malloy, and Jerry Ellsworth all crashing together. Yeah, it was, it was impressive. I did not think your basement could hold that many people. My basement can hold quite a few bodies, as I found out. I'm not in that location anymore, but you're always welcome to come visit. I had the opportunity to bump into you again a year or two later, because at the time, no longer though, you and Thomas Compter were both living in Vermont, and he decided to have a Lord of the Rings marathon. Ah, oh, yes, I remember that. That was, that was a long night. It was a long day. It was both fun and grueling. We started off with the animated Hobbit, and then we went into the director's cut expanded editions of all three live-action Lord of the Rings movies, all in one day. Yeah, that, that was impressive. It was worth the trip to Vermont, though. Unfortunately, you're no longer in New England. You are in Florida, is that correct? I am in Florida, yes. I traded the bad weather for the sun. Where in Florida? I'm in Gainesville, Florida. 
And we get less hurricanes here than we do in New England. Really? Fewer hurricanes? Well, in the four years I've been here, there have been zero hurricanes. And in the four years I haven't been in Vermont, there's been one hurricane. What about earthquakes or tornadoes? Do you have those? There are occasional tornadoes. I've never seen one. Mike, you might know this. Retro MacCast is recorded in Florida. Are they in Gainesville? I have no idea where, where that is. Even though you are in Florida, Kelvin, I'm glad that we were able to get you on our show before Retro MacCast nabbed you. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. So headlining the news this month is the announcement of the keynote speaker for Kansas Fest 2012, which by the time we record this podcast with Kelvin, will have already broken online. So we're actually going into the past to break this news. We are three days prior to speaking to Kelvin. Thank you, Mike. And you are going to be one of the first people outside the Kansas Fest Committee to find out the identity of our speaker. Awesome. Yes, I got permission from the Kansas Fest Committee, on which of which I'm a member, to break this news to you with the understanding that it won't air until later, after it breaks online. I'll be posting it immediately. I'm sure you will be all <laughs> over Twitter, Facebook, and Google+. Yep. But I wanted to get your sincere reaction on the air as you find out. Well, first of all, do you have any guesses? Um, none that would make any sense, no. <laughs> well, we've had a lot of fantastic keynote speakers over the years. We've had former Apple employees, former Nibble employees, former Beagle Brothers employees. We're sticking with that trend and going with uh, somebody who has done some work in the Apple II community, but not in a long time. We solicited this person because next year marks the 20th anniversary of this person's most famous release. Okay. Does this mean anything to you yet? Well, that would be 1991, so no. Next year is the 20th anniversary. <laughs> yeah, because I can count. <laughs> 1992. No, no, it doesn't. Okay. What other hints can I give you? How about soft disk? Still don't know. Okay. I, I was never a big soft disk user. Well, this person was not just a user, but also a programmer. But it may not be a name that you normally associate with the Apple II community. Just going to come right out and say it. The Kansas Fest 2012 keynote speaker is John Romero. What? Yes. No. Oh, you jerks. What? I was planning to skip Kansas Fest 2012. Now I have to go. <laughs> yes, the co-creator of Wolfenstein 3D, the first first-person shooter, or one of them, that redefined the gaming industry and created a genre that is imitated to this day, will be coming to Kansas Fest. Well, in all seriousness, that is that is really, really great news, and I, I can't wait to see it. <laughs> I'm a little stunned because there aren't a lot of people who have contributed to the Apple II community 20 years ago who are still big names in the industry today. I mean, you have a few like Bill Budge and Steve Wozniak, and we've been fortunate enough to have half of those people. Uh, but to have to have John Romero take time out of his day to come to Kansas Fest is stunning. That's really amazing news, and congratulations to you guys for, for getting him to, to sign on. Thank you. I hope nothing comes up in his schedule, because, of course, somebody who is that important nowadays can have the unexpected occur. But he, to, uh, to make things even better, he said he'll be coming with his partner, I hope I pronounced her name right, Brenda Brathwaite, who has been working in the gaming industry since 1981, most notably at Surtech on the Wizardry series. Oh, wow. So she's got an Apple II pedigree as well. Oh, quite. She could be a keynote speaker in her own right. 
So this is going to be quite the Kansas Fest. Uh, yeah, it sounds like it. And uh, as I said, now I'm actually going to have to make it out there. Did you ever read the book? I think it's called Masters of Doom. No. Because that is a, a hardcover that came out maybe six or seven years ago all about the history of the first-person shooter, especially Wolf 3D, Doom, Quake, and other games that were created by John Romero and his partner John Carmack. Well, I'll have to order that from Amazon. Even though John Romero is not the author of the book, I'm sure that he'd be happy to sign some copies at Kansas Fest. Also, he may even sign some copies of Get Lamp because he was in that as well. That's right, he was. Mm -hmm. And maybe that'll bring Jason back too. And maybe also his partner Lane Roth because a couple of years ago, John and Lane created the company Ideas from the Deep, which Lane still runs today. Wasn't Lane at Kansas Fest recently as well? He was one of our former keynote speakers, that's correct. I think that was in 2008, which was the year that I was not there. Uh, sounds about right. So yeah, uh, it was actually back in 1998 that John Romero held his own little Apple II get-together in Texas, which uh, Jason Scott recently mentioned on his Kickstarter campaign as one of the things that brought the history of the Apple II and the 6502 to Jason's attention and made him want to create all these documentaries. Yeah, I, I was actually looking at John's webpage recently and he's got pictures of that event up mm -hmm. so maybe all his friends from that event will come out of the woodwork for another reunion that'd be something and now we're back in the present with kelvin who we just found out has also not heard the news about the keynote speaker mike would you like to do the honors uh no ken why don't you well, Kelvin, I don't know if this will get you to Kansas Fest, but if it doesn't, probably nothing will. Kansas Fest 2012's keynote speaker will be John Romero. You don't say. I do say. <laughs> you say. Wow. Is this a name known to you? It is. He was a soft disk programmer. I've played plenty of his games. Yes, that's right. He is perhaps best known not for his Apple II stuff, but as he recently tweeted, he has not stopped making games since 1979, and that certainly includes all iterations of the Apple II, for which, uh, which is where he got his start. Wow. I think this is going to be a pretty cool KFS. I can't remember the last time we got a keynote speaker who is still active today for the things that made him famous 30 years ago. I was not actually planning to go to Kansas Fest 2012. Ken broke the news to me, and, and that sort of threw my summer plans for 2012 in a complete disarray, because now I have to fit Kansas Fest into that schedule as well, because I'm not going to miss that. Oh, excellent. But you have plenty of time to figure out how that works. <sighs> yeah, but you know me. It'll be early July before I figure it out. Uh, are there any other conventions that have occurred lately that we wish to talk about? There were a couple of them, actually. Uh, VCF Midwest uh, took place in Chicago a weekend or two ago, and uh, our friends over at the Retro Computing Roundtable were there. You can check out their coverage of that in their latest episode. They actually attended? I, I think David Grealish was there. Oh, interesting. I was hoping to meet him at Vintage Computer Festival East back in May, because I know geographically that's closer to him, but I think he had just either started a new job or uh, was moving, and he couldn't make it. So I, I guess he got all that squared away and was able to make it to Chicago. Yeah, they, they kind of did a, a double sort of live broadcast thing. It was actually pretty interesting. Uh, Carrington hosted the RCR, and Earl was at a show in Portland, and David was at uh, VCF Midwest, and they sort of did live feeds back and forth. It was kind of neat. You should check it out. I do remember them talking about that was going to happen, and I did download the latest episode today, but haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. It's definitely worth listening to. And this one kind of caught me off guard. Apparently, there's a VCF Southwest. I, I had not heard of this. 
Where's that? And that happened at the University Center at the University of Texas in Arlington back on August 6th and 7th. And they have pictures up. There's a link to the website in the show notes. Is there any place there isn't a VCF? Well, there's no VCF Rocky Mountain. Or Pacific Northwest. There you go. Which is where Earl Evans is. I think there's an opportunity there. I think there's a lot of other shows up in the Northwest, though. Yeah, they have the... No, wait, that's the Science Fiction Museum. We've been over that. Yeah. Yeah, well, they have that one, and then there's a couple of Commodore shows and some other stuff. Now, Kelvin, geographically speaking, which would be the most convenient location for you to attend one of these shows that already exists? So our options are Midwest, East, Southwest. And the original. And the original. In California, West. Right, which I don't think is currently being held. Yeah, I think that one's on long-term hiatus. Probably either East or Southwest. Unfortunately, there isn't a Southeast. Perhaps there's no vintage computers in the Southeast. (laughs) Or perhaps it's only vintage computers, so people don't realize they're vintage. Wow. Do you have any Southeast listeners? (laughs) Not anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Kelvin, are there other retro computers that interest you, or are you solely an Apple II guy? I'm an Apple II guy. Yeah, in that case, as I've found, VCF has a broader appeal. So for those who have a focused interest like the three of us do, it doesn't have the breadth of appeal. I can appreciate historical computing, but it doesn't have as much meaning to me as uh, the Apple II. Yeah, there's not as much sentimental attachment there. Exactly. Yeah, actually getting your hands on the machine and seeing it working in pristine condition and running old software lacks the nostalgia value if it isn't an Apple II. Yes, definitely. And what is it used by day? Are you a Windows guy? At work, unfortunately, yes, Windows. At home, I have an iMac. So you're pretty much a cross-platform guy. You're comfortable in any environment. I guess you could say that, yes. Protoss and DOS. There isn't anything else. Nope. Another event that comes from Chicago is the Glitch, which I believe was held in 2010. According to what I'm reading online, it brought people together for five days of glitchy art, hacking coding workshops, discussions, screenings, lectures, and real-time AV performances. All events were free and open to the public. Now, I'm not too familiar with the Glitch community, but I guess that they focus on either the inherent bugs that are in any piece of programming and the unusual, especially aesthetic effect that it can have, or perhaps on even introducing their own bugs. Are either of you familiar with the Glitch community? I was not familiar with it before I learned of this Kickstarter. I am, and that's just because one of the, one of the Apple II's own community members, Melissa Barron, uh, creates Glitch art related to uh, Apple II software. That's right. Apparently she's involved with the Glitch, the larger community. This event that was held in Chicago in 2010, they want to make it happen again in 2011 and also spread it to other communities, including Amsterdam, Birmingham, UK. To do all this, they need some money. They have gone on Kickstarter, which we have mentioned before, as a website and service that Jason Scott and David Grealish have used. They are asking for money to uh, propagate this event. And when I say asking, I should say asked, because by the time this airs, they will have met their goal of $3,200, and they'll actually have almost doubled it. So this event will be occurring. Wow, that's great. Yes, it's, uh, it's something that I'd like to see more of, only because I'm curious as to what it actually is. Their website is as, how should I say this, aesthetically disruptive as the glitches that they focus on, which sometimes makes it a little bit hard for outsiders to just get a straight answer. <laughs> That's one way to put it, yeah. I was rather confused at their uh, Kickstarter video. I 
probably understood it less after watching the video than I did before. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Uh, the reason this comes up on Apple II podcast is that Melissa Barron, who Mike mentioned, donated two of her tapestries to the Kickstarter. Kickstarter is founded on the idea that when you donate money, there's an incentive for you to do so. You get some sort of a reward, whether it's a public acknowledgement or a physical gift. And in this case, anybody who donated $666 got one of two of Melissa's uh, weavings. There were only two such tapestries available. Only one of them was uh, donated at that price because there was no other, other person who chose that amount or that reward. Still, I think it's very cool that she donated to this cause and that it went for so much. It really shows you the value that her kind of art has. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to get uh, an idea of what her glitch art actually looks like, there's a bunch of pictures from uh, the latest Kansas Fest, she showed up with a collection of, of her glitch uh, weavings that were uh, really neat to see. Yeah, we had an exhibit hall at Kansas Fest this year, which was unprecedented, and she set up a little table that showed off all her art. She even hung some from the ceiling. It brought a very different feel to the event because usually people are showing off hardware and software, and this was something that was neither. And she actually won a prize for it. That's right. If people want to know more about Glitch, obviously the link will be in the show notes, but it's an interesting website that I'll share here as well because it's short. It's gli.tc slash h. So that's Glitch with a lot of punctuation. Clever. Isn't it? Ken, have you used Google Plus at all? Are you, are you on that social network? I am. I signed up in early July. So you're familiar with the Hangout feature that Google Plus has? Yeah, actually, I was an early tester of it for a Computer World story. One of the reporters there wanted to test the video features of both Google Plus and Facebook, so I tried it out with him. I didn't realize he was taking screenshots, which then showed up on ComputerWorld.com. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm glad I was wearing a shirt that day. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Why do you ask? Oh, well, I bring it up because I've been hanging out, actually, with Jason Scott. He's been doing a lot of hangouts in the evenings on Google+, and one of the things he's been talking about recently is his new Kickstarter projects. It's one Kickstarter, I think, actually, for three different upcoming documentaries that he's got going, or that, that he's got in the works that I, I guess are due out, he said, at near the end of 2015. Now, he had previously used Kickstarter for Get Lamp, right? He had, yeah, and, and that did very well for him. He went ahead and decided to do that again with these new projects that he's got going. There are three new documentaries, and I don't know if he's shooting them like one, two, three, or all at the same time. They are a documentary on the 6502 processor that you find in most of the 8-bit home computers of the 80s, including the Apple II series and the Apple III. Uh, and the other one that's really of interest to me was the uh, arcade piece. He's doing a, a documentary on arcades. And then there's a third one on tape, is what he's calling it. I guess he, he goes into the in-depth about the history of people recording things on tape or something. I'm not really sure what he's got going with that one. And how much is he asking for to shoot all these? I think he was asking for $100,000. That's quite a sum. It is, but he's already up to 75000 something. I don't have it. 84000 Oh, wow. Okay, so he's even further along. So I don't think he's going to have any problem reaching his goal and then some. Yeah, I think this documentary started about two and a half weeks ago, and it has another month and a half to go for him to reach his goal. So given how quickly he's gotten to, he's, you know, 84% of the way there already. Right. And the Kickstarter doesn't end when he meets his goal. It, it ends 42 days from when we're recording this show which means that he might end up with you know a quarter million dollars. Yep. I'm guessing he, he could make quite a set of documentaries with that amount of money. He had significantly less for BBS and for GetLamp. 
Well, the thing about Get Lamp, he was I think he was asking for $25,000 for that, but at that point he had already recorded everything. Whereas these three films, he has barely begun. Right. This is supposed to cover everything from beginning to end. I think with the first two, he invested a lot of his own money in those projects. I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but the uh, 6502 has a very fascinating history. You know, it was uh, popular, it was cheap, and so lots of different variations of it were created with all sorts of weird instructions. You ruined it. <laughs> I ruined it. Now I don't need to see the documentary. Well, yeah, and in fact, Apple used a variant of that, uh, of the 6502, uh, in the Apple III. It was uh, basically the same core, but it was it was faster, and it was made by SimTech rather than Moz. Yeah, there were dozens of different uh, manufacturers. Yep. Dozens of different versions. The rewards that Jason is giving for this Kickstarter, there are three different rewards at the $100 level. You get to choose your reward, and it is basically a pre-order of the film of your choice. So you can kind of tell by looking at which reward has the most backers, which film is the most popular. He has nine backers who have chosen a pre-order of tape. I don't know if that's just the subject of the film or actually the name of the film. He has 36 backers for Arcade and 49 at this moment for 6502. So that's by and large the most popular of the three films he's set out to work on. Now that's just of the people who are, are donating to, to one, is that right? Yes, uh, that's a good point. You can also donate $250 and get all three, and 173 people have done that. It's interesting, though. Usually there are scales of rewards, and you know, obviously Jason has that. You can donate $1,000, $5,000, and he has rewards for each one of those levels. Under $100, you don't get anything physical. He, he says that for $10, he'll give you a pat on the head and a thank you for supporting his <laughs> endeavor, which almost sounds a little demeaning. Well, it, it could be a kick in the back. Well, there's that. I guess that's if you donated negative $10. But, I mean, you can donate any amount you want. You can donate, you know, $64, $88. But the rewards only come at those levels, and he has provided no incentive to donate any sum between 10 and 100 And maybe that's working for him because he's raised $84,000 in, you know, about 20 days. With GetLap, the, the package that, that you got with the uh, when you ordered it came with a lot of great stuff, and I think people kind of want that because he's promised deluxe packaging mm -hmm. uh, with uh, the higher levels of donation, and that's always of interest, I think, to collectors. Kelvin, have you seen Jason's previous works? I have not, unfortunately. Well, he usually charges more than your standard Hollywood blockbuster. It's like 40 bucks for the package, but I also believe he basically breaks everything up into episodes, which are then available... Th for download through Creative Commons on his website. You know, he doesn't necessarily encourage it because that doesn't put any money in his pocket to fund future endeavors, but he does permit it. I see. So it's very easy to get either samples of his work or his entire works right online. Right, get a, get a nice taste of it before you commit to it. Yeah, you know, if you think that it's worth something to you, then you can go ahead and you know reward him for providing you with that. Yeah, I think Jason's packages... Um definitely provide the extra value for the money that he's asking. I would like to say that I think TextFiles is the second best website on the internet. Dare I ask what the first is? OpenApple.net. Thank you. I want to know what you guys think Kickstarter could be used for as far as an Apple II project goes. There are a lot of things that have been on Kickstarter that are of interest to Apple II users, but none except maybe for the 6502 documentary that have actually been aimed at an Apple II audience. Can you imagine anything that could be possible through Kickstarter? 
I would think possibly some hardware-related items. Don't ask me which items, but I would go to, with hardware. That's exactly where I was going to go. I don't have any off the top of my head, but it would seem to be a very easy way to raise money for development and maybe initial production run of, of a hardware project for the Apple II. Another option would be we could raise money to buy Apple and start making more Apple IIs again. Yay. <clears throat> I'm, I'm on board with that. An alternative to using Kickstarter is just for a developer, be it of hardware or software, to take pre-orders. The difference with pre-orders is that when people pledge their money, they usually actually give you the money. So for each pre-order, somebody is forking over money to the developer for what is at that moment vaporware. The nice thing about Kickstarter is that you set a goal, like $10,000, and either you meet that goal or exceed it, or you get nothing. If people pledge $9,000 and your time limit runs out, you don't get any of that money. Right, it all, it all gets returned. Right, which is some nice insurance for the potential backers. Uh, I've thought about Kickstarter for Juice GS, but I think that I would probably be more inclined to just take pre-orders to gauge interest because Kickstarter and Amazon, which actually handles the financial side of Kickstarter funds, they both take a cut. So if you're asking for $10,000, you may get like 9500 or 9000 I'm not sure the exact percentage. Whereas with if you're handling the transaction yourself, like on a Juice GS website or whatever, uh, PayPal might take their cut. Or if you're collecting checks, you get the money directly and there are no cuts. So in a way, it's almost uh, financially more efficient. So anyway, we wish Jason well. We do, yes. Good luck, Jason. Good luck. And I suppose it's that time of the month again where we talk about lists of Apple II products that showed up on the web. Because lists are so fun and easy to compile, and they're link bait and flame bait and get the hits. Is that why they do that? I think so. Also, I've learned from my time at Computer World that people love to see numbers in headlines. Well, yeah, there's that. So what headline are you reading? I wouldn't normally have mentioned this except for the author's choice of products. Uh, the, the list is eight mysterious Apple products, which you might not know of. I don't know. When I read that, I think of prototypes, you know, maybe the Pippin, some other weird stuff like that, uh, that never did very well or never escaped from uh, Cupertino in the first place. But number one on the list is the Apple III, and number two is the Apple II GS. Wait, the what? Yes, you heard me, the Apple II GS. I've never heard of that. And now there's even a YouTube video of those products. Is it a spoof? No, I don't think it is. No, it's just it's just those products set to music. I would not consider most of those to be particularly mysterious. And the thing is, there are plenty of very mysterious, very rare, very weird Apple products they could have picked that might require more work. You know, like the Mark Twain, for example. Yes, or their tablet. Oh, the Apple graphics tablet? That one, yes. Not the iPad. Right, most people have probably heard of that. Or the Knowledge Navigator? Okay, now you got me on that one. That's completely unknown to me. That was John Scully's brainchild, which later became the Newton. It started out as a, a large tablet. Hmm. Then a few prototypes that have escaped onto eBay and other places like that. Well, the third time's the charm. Yep, I think so. Now, in the author's defense, Mike, you mentioned the Bandai Pippin, and that is on this list at number seven. Sure. But everything else, I scrolled to the bottom to try to find a bio for the author, and there isn't one. I would really like to know how old he is and where he's from, and if maybe this is just a list of eight mysterious Apple products which he never knew about. Well, it's possible. I mean, until a couple of months ago, I didn't know there were Apple users out there that weren't aware of the Apple II line. 
<laughs> we met a couple of those, didn't we? We did at a, a Mac user group. There were people there, and I don't, they still had boggles my mind, but they were not aware that Apple made computers before the Macintosh. Although most of the people at that user group had been a member of that user group since it was founded in 1978. Exactly. So the people who don't know about the Apple II are definitely the exception, not the rule. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to assume the original title was Eight Apple Products, and the editor went a little overboard. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Now that you mention it, I really don't know what about the Apple II GS is mysterious. Right. He looked at Eight Apple Products and said, hmm, that's kind of bland. Well, I think it's safe to say that whatever products they would have put on that list, there are not many people listening to Open Apple who would have found any of them mysterious. Probably not, no. Now, the majority of Apple users, whether or not they know about the Apple II historically, apparently they have a reputation, according to this message thread on AtariAge.com. The subject line is, why are Apple II users different? And different is in quotation marks. And that implies something very different from what the author is actually asking. I thought he meant, you know, why are we special? But what he's really asking is, what he says is there are Tandy users, there are Commodore users, they're all people who share their material freely online. They scan it, they image it, they put it on eBay for the cheap, etc. And then there are the Apple II users who hoard all their stuff and ask hundreds if not thousands of dollars for it and don't share and he wants to know why we're so selfish and greedy. Yeah, somebody called us those damn selfish pigs. <laughs> yeah, I think the obvious answer is that Atari and Commodore and Tandy material has no value whatsoever. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, send your hate mail to... <laughs> K. Gagney. <at> <laughs> right. What do you two think about this? Do you think that his perspective on our community is accurate or not? And either way, why? I, I hate to say it, but if you look at the uh, the Asimov archive, it's it's a huge collection of of Apple II software and documentation, and it keeps getting bigger every day. And it's all in one place, and it's categorized. I mean, which pretty much kind of blows holes in this theory. But it's a pirate site, so I think you also have to consider that you really need to separate the information and say a disk image from the actual physical product in the physical product, whether it's boxes or magazines, they have value as a collector's item, which is completely separate from the informational value contained within. Yeah, and that I would agree with. And, and they, they do make mention of some of the ridiculous prices on eBay, and I would certainly agree with that. I don't know how that got started or, or why the prices are so high, but I mean, if you're, if you're shopping on eBay for a plain old Apple IIe, you're going to pay too much money for it. And that's not the case for other retro computers? I was looking the other day, and you can get a, a complete Commodore 64, a bunch of software, joysticks, a bunch of accessories, monitor everything you could want for less than 100 bucks. That does sound like a good deal. They definitely have the rarities. You're not going to get a Commodore Pet for cheap. I guess the closest equivalent to a 2E would be the 64, and there's definitely a disparity there. It, it may be that they're just behind the curve on the bubble. In uh, 1999, I did buy a 2GS off eBay. It was fairly cheap, came with a lot of software. Uh, some decent hardware as well. I actually used that to develop a G Shizen, and I, I got a good deal on it. I'm sure today I could not get that same deal on it. Well, sure. I think some of this stuff is maturing into a vintage computer category that it didn't before. There was probably a period there where the Apple II was just fading out of being useful for practical purposes and before it had become nostalgic to use. 
And at that point, probably those things were selling like hotcakes. But also consider Apple is still around as a company. They're still producing computers and other accessories. Uh, Atari, they're just a name. Commodore, they're just a name. Tandy, they don't exist anymore. That's true. What do you mean? There's new Commodore 64s? <laughs> Let's not get into that again. <laughs> I almost said that with a straight face. <laughs> but isn't it also true that Apple II stuff was originally more expensive than any of this other stuff? Yeah, yeah, absolutely was. Apple Apple computers do keep their value better. So maybe proportionate to their original values, Apple II stuff on eBay and Commodore 64 stuff on eBay, it, it's still relative to you know what they're worth. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> An original Apple II or RevZero motherboard is going to go for several thousand dollars, you know, and that, that makes sense to me. Those are hard to find, especially in working condition with all the original parts, but, you know, come on, a, an Apple IIe for $250 and it's missing keys and, and isn't guaranteed to work? No. Yeah, but the original uh, user on the Atari H message board, he was talking about hardware like this, but also information like PDFs. His exact quote was, sure, you can find a few PDFs here and there, but nowhere near the amount of the other retro systems. I'm not sure that a user who's saying that is aware of resources like nibblemagazine.com and apple2scans.net, where there is just a wealth of free and legal information. Yeah, yes, it could just be an issue that he's looking in the wrong place. Yeah, although one of the things that I get asked a lot uh, about scans and what I'm going to scan next, uh, and it's mentioned in this thread here, are the, the, the big three, A+, Insider, and Softalk. And those are still missing in action, as someone points out. Right, and I don't think until those are available, this user will be happy. Probably not, um, and that might be a while just because of the logistics involved in scanning those. Getting those scanned is a lot harder than some of the other stuff. Even, like, I was looking at uh, a copy of A+, last night. It's 112 pages as opposed to, like, 48 Macs that computers came with. They're all in color, and you pretty much have to destroy the magazine to get a good scan. Eek. And the, their early soft talks were hundreds of pages. And anybody who does a project like that is not going to get paid for their time. Yeah. Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> Help us violate copyright. That's right. Maybe one of your rewards can be, we promise that if you ever publish anything, we'll leave it alone. <laughs> <laughs> At least for a few years. There's actually been a new software release recently that is relevant to the software protection scene, and that is T40 by Antoine Vignal of Brutal Deluxe. He has created, at the request of Daniel Krasina, a 40-column text editor. And Dan asked for this because, historically, when Apple II software that was copy-protected was cracked, the person who cracked the software would seek acknowledgement by modifying the game's title screen to include their handle or pirate name. Martin Hay, for example, did this at Kansas Fest 2010 when he cracked Wizardry. Dan wanted an easier way to create those crack screens, so Antoine created a program that is theoretically designed to create crack screens. It's called T40. It's available as a free download from the Brill Deluxe website. And Dan has started collecting art produced in this program. He is posting it on his website where you can view it as image files, and he's also compiling it into a slideshow program that runs natively on an Apple II. Oh, that's neat. Is there a crack screen for it? 
I'm not sure. I haven't actually used the software because because uh, I haven't had the need to use it yet, uh, uh, having never cracked it something before. But uh, you know, it, it's nice that especially someone like Antoine, who's well known for his 16-bit programs, uh, can provide such a, an elegant solution to an 8-bit problem. I think the best part about it is that you can't actually save the screen from within the T40 application. Once you exit back to basic, you have to b-save it to your disk yourself. And you like that? I think it's very fitting. I see. Yes, it's uh, it's apropos. Uh, is this text only, or is it high-res graphics, or is it... You can use mouse text. Okay. I bring it up because I think it'd be neat to go back through and maybe replace some of the original crack screens. There was a, a crack of a game called Jungle Hunt, which had a very offensive opening crack screen. The the word hunt had been replaced with something else. So it, it, it would be neat to go back through and remove that screen and maybe put something a little bit less offensive in. And if T40 could do that, that'd be great. So you want to crack the crack? Uh, yeah, so I want to graffiti the graffiti. Huh. I suppose if one were so inclined, that could be done. I think I misspoke about the mouse text. You can use inverted text. I love you. But it's it's text only, not graphics. Definitely. Not that that's bad. You can use flashing or inverted text. Yeah, isn't mouse text generally an 80-column thing? I believe it might be. In fact, I'm sure it is. A quick news item for you Apple III fans out there like myself. Obviously, everyone has heard the news by now that uh, Rich is, is building and selling the CFFA 3000 card. Uh, and in fact, it's been so popular, it sold out almost immediately. The two Davids, being Schmank and Schmidt, got together with Rich and developed an Apple III driver for the CFFA 3000. So if you're interested uh, in learning more about that, you can stop by the Apple III Enthusiast Facebook group or Rich's forums. Now, what is different in using this card in an Apple III as opposed to an Apple II? Uh, well, the system bus in an Apple III runs at 2 megahertz, so the card's going to be a lot faster for uh, input and output. You don't get to use the USB connector as is on the card. Rich did think ahead and leave an extra header on there so that you can move the USB connector because with the Apple III card cage, the card barely fits in there, and there's no way you're going to plug anything into that USB port, which sticks out the end. Now, have you gotten to use this card on your Apple III? Uh, I have not. My card does not work yet. I'm working with uh, Rich to get that working. And when it does work, you if I recall, you have one Apple II, one Apple III, and one CFFA 3000. So it sounds like you're a card short. I have several older CFFA cards that I can juggle around for that purpose. But still, in the end, you really will have to buy another CFFA 3000. Damn you! <laughs> You'll have two, and I won't have even one. <laughs> Kelvin, what's some of the funky hardware you have in your Apple II? Well, right now I don't have a physical Apple II. <gasps> what happened to it? It's in storage. Oh, okay. So it didn't get lost or given away or anything. Let's assume I did. Let's see. I have a RamFast SCSI card, a CMS SCSI card, and a Focus internal hard drive. Now, why would you need more than one SCSI card? Well, I have two computers, of course. Oh. <laughs> Duh. And hopefully some extra RAM in there. Oh, yes. Um, four megabytes. Per computer? Yes. It's the only way to do it. And these are both ROM 1s? Yes, indeed. I don't trust the ROM 3s. Maybe it's just me. Yeah, I recently helped put together an article for Juice GS about getting started with the Apple II GS. And I had to put the caveat in there that there is some software that doesn't run quite right on the ROM 3. Have you, have you ever encountered any such software? I've never used a ROM 3, so I don't know. What reason do you have to not trust it, then? I'm just joking. Oh, okay. Because there are people who have problems with them. 
Right. Yes. FTA, they made uh, some of their software. It was pretty hard on the metal and was very specific. There were demos that did not get along with the ROM 3 well. Most desktop applications were very ROM 3 happy. In, in some case, worked a little bit faster as the uh, ROM 3 had uh, more ROM. And so more uh, toolboxes were loaded in the ROM and didn't need to be loaded from disk. The only program I ever had a problem with was a shareware game called Death Hunt. And it was a game you could play over the modem with other Apple IIgs users, even though I never got the opportunity to do so. But for some reason, that game just wouldn't work on a ROM 3. I don't know why. I, th I actually paid my shareware fee, but I never got the registered version of the game. I think at that point, the developer had already moved on to greener pastures, and he wasn't interested in finding out about its issues with the ROM 3 or fixing them. Mm -hmm. Oh, well. But speaking of the article I mentioned getting started with the Apple II, the latest issue of JuiceGS just shipped yesterday. Yay! Yeah, it was a challenging issue to put together because it was just bad timing for a lot of the staff writers and contributors. One staff writer just moved. The editor-in-chief just moved. One staff writer took his first vacation in four years. Another staff writer became violently ill and had to go to the hospital. Uh, somehow, everything came together in time for it to meet its end-of-month deadline. So the issue has shipped. It has lengthy articles as opposed to many articles. There's Getting started with the Apple II GS, which is part three of three in a series of articles. There are reviews of both the A2 MP3 card and the brain board. There is coverage of Kansas Fest 2011, which is the first time, as far as I know, in the 16 years that Juice GS has been in publication that the Kansas Fest coverage was not written by the then editor-in-chief. This month it was written by Kansas Fest attendee and Juice GS staff writer Ivan Drucker, who we've had on the show. I can't wait to read it. Me neither. And there's also a lovely full-color backpage ad announcing Romero's keynote speakership at Kansas Fest 2012. I imagine that's going to be a very popular keynote. I'm sure it will. The issue of JuiceGS also briefly alludes to something that we made a much bigger deal of in JuiceGS five years ago. Uh, this month, that being September is actually the 25th anniversary of the release of the Apple II GS. Yay, happy birthday. <laughs> Hard to believe that it's still around and that we're still around and we're still using it. Hard to believe it's been 25 years. <laughs> Does it seem like just yesterday? Yeah, well, maybe not just yesterday, but... 25 years ago. It... Yeah, I still got mine on my desk and Kelvin has his in storage. And Mike, I know you have a lot of Apple IIs, how long have you held on to one Apple II that you still have? I still have my first Apple II Plus in the basement. So uh, we got that in 81. And I plug it in about once a year just to uh, exercise the caps and, and make sure it still works. When did you get your first 2GS? Uh, 98, 99, something like that. I didn't get a 2GS until long after it had been discontinued. I, I picked it up at a thrift store, actually, for 10 bucks, And um, it had a... Uh, uh, Transwarp in it. Good deal. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that at the time, but I was very lucky to have scored that. Well, I think we're all lucky to be Apple II users. Yes, indeed. Aww. What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings. It's been kind of a busy month for me. I really haven't had time to troll the eBay uh, auctions lately. Ken, have you come up with anything interesting? I've actually been using eBay a lot lately, not all of it for the Apple II stuff, just trying to outfit my new apartment. 
and also just getting some random stuff that I decided I wanted on the spur of the moment, like the soundtrack to Metal Gear Solid 3 for the PlayStation 2 and the soundtrack to the original movie, The Karate Kid. Ooh. Yeah. Well, The Karate Kid uses the song You're the Best, which is also on the soundtrack for the documentary King of Kong. Yeah, that's in a lot of places. Well, those two soundtracks especially both make it available via iTunes, but only if you buy the entire album. Okay. I didn't want to buy the entire album. I just wanted that one song. And it was actually cheaper to buy the Karate Kid CD on eBay and have it shipped to me than to buy the digital album on iTunes. That's interesting. You can buy the individual song? No, you can't. You have to buy the whole thing. Right. There isn't much else on the Karate Kid soundtrack worth buying. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) There's a reason it's out of print. But I did buy some Apple II stuff, that being Microzine, which was a regular disc publication by Scholastic for the educational market 25 years ago. I've been looking for copies of this for ages, and apparently I just never advertised the fact that I was doing so, because once people found out I love Microzine, they started showing up on my doorstep at Kansas Fest. They're everywhere, and people are just sending them to me in the mail because they have them and want to get rid of them. Wow, that's nice. Sounds like a good problem to have. Well, I mean, if you're trying to find something specific, it's nice when people just show up and give it to you. I had a grand total of one microzine that was given to me as a present. Which one was it? Don't know the number. It involved a, uh, there was a game which involved ancient Greek mythology. That's about all I could tell you. Well, we reviewed microzine number one on Open Megahertz back in July, and that was a trapezoidal package that it came in. There were other configurations, including plastic clamshells and just cardboard sleeves. Each one usually featured unique cover art representing the software on that disc. I bought a pack of four volumes on eBay. I think it was 33, 34, 35, 36. And each one has identical packaging, which is unusual, I guess. From my youth, I'm only familiar with Microzine up to like number 16 or so. So I had no idea what to expect from number 32 and higher. There's no nostalgia value there, but I got them just to add to my collection. I haven't played any of them yet, but from the outside, they're very bland looking. So what's your Microzine attraction? Uh, Mostly nostalgia. I would bring it home from grade school on a Friday afternoon and have all weekend with it. But I loved the, I don't know if you'd call it interactive fiction. It was more of a choose-your-own-adventure. But I just loved the tales of, like, there was historical fiction on there, like one that had you going through the Revolutionary War, where I learned stuff that, you know, I still know today and is still useful. Is it true? (laughs) It is. And (laughs) No, actually, my parents had an old encyclopedia set up in the attic, and I remember one day I was looking through there, and I found stuff that I had learned from Microzine, and I didn't realize until that moment that Microzine was actually teaching me something. I learned a lot of uh, Caribbean geography from Pirates, the game. See? I mean, this stuff actually works. It tricks kids into learning. I also learned how to plunder. (laughs) And and pillage and loot. No, not pillage, just plunder. okay. All those good things. Sword fight, sale, yep. I also used eBay recently from the seller's perspective. Vince Briel donated a Kansas Fest edition A2 MP3 card for auction to raise money for the Ryan Suinaga Scholarship Fund. So I put that on eBay. Tony Diaz was actually in possession of the card, but I handled the transaction and the money, and then he shipped it out. And I was uh, very grateful to be impressed by how much it sold for. As always with eBay, things don't start off very high. It's only in the last day or even hour that the price really starts to get up there. But by the time that this auction was over, it had gone for $237.06, which is more than twice the cost of buying 
a standard edition A2 MP3 card direct from the developer. It's always nice to see when people pitch in like that. Yeah, I don't know if this person just really wanted the Kansas Fest edition or he knew that the money, 100% of it, was going to a good cause. I saw some familiar names on the list of bidders, which I have access to as the seller. I won't announce them on the air, but it was really nice to see people wanting to buy this card. Yeah, that's great. Uh, but that's pretty much all I've been doing on eBay lately. What about either of you? I really haven't had a whole lot of time, and maybe that's been kind of a good thing because uh, our old friend Randy Brandt has just been dumping magazines on me like crazy. I've got like six boxes from him now. Nice. Uh, are these all to be scanned? Yeah, I think so. Some are duplicates of, of uh, issues and, and magazines that I already have, but a lot of it's not stuff that I've had before. So he's just adding to my scanning workload. How thoughtful. Yeah, thanks, Randy. And you, Kelvin, anything on eBay caught your eye lately? Actually, now that you mention it, yes. Uh, a couple things, in fact. Uh, tell me about it. Well, one is a rare, if you can believe it or rare not. Rare on eBay? What? That's unheard of. It's a rare CPM card by Digital Research and Advanced Logic Systems. Digital Research was the company which uh, created the CPM, and... This includes a book, and it appears to be still uh, shrink-wrapped. Yeah, it says it's new and factory-sealed. That might actually be rare. Current bid of 51. Now, in the description it says the CPM card is a very rare software for the Apple II, but when I hear card, I think hardware. Hmm, that's a good point. Yes, yes, it, it is a card. Okay. It comes with CPM software, but it's, it's a hardware card with a Z80 chip. Yeah, there were what, dozens of uh, CPM card manufacturers, including Microsoft. Um, I've been told, it may not be true, but I've been told that IBM asked Microsoft to provide them with a uh, operating system for their PC because Microsoft manufactured a CPM card for the Apple II. That's very possible. I don't know. Any idea how widespread the digital research and advanced logic systems card was? I'm the wrong person to ask. I've heard... I've heard, I don't have confirmation, but I've heard that it's rare. Oh, okay. So if folks want a CPM card, this one on eBay is as good a bet as any? If it stays at $50, it's a really good deal. I don't think it will, but... Oh, and don't forget the shipping. It's $35. Oh, yeah. Because the card is coming from Venezuela. Well, you could wait three or four months, and then it's only 20 bucks. <laughs> it looks like it comes with a fairly heavy book, too. There's a Yahoo CPM group that archives all sorts of... Uh, documentation and, and disk images for the various versions of CPM. What was it that caught your eye about this on eBay, uh, Kelvin? I think the word rare is overused on eBay, but if it is shrink-wrapped from 1983, then it does seem fairly rare to me. Something that I noticed on eBay recently is a copy of AutoArc, which is compression software. It, any software on your hard drive that is not currently being accessed or executed it compresses just like shrink it would and ideally as long as you have enough space left on your hard drive to expand the file for when it is in use it increases the the capacity of your hard drive you know virtually by making everything on it smaller uh, this is going for eight dollars plus four dollars shipping and it is not to be confused with hard pressed which was a program that andy mcfadden actually now that you mention it hard pressed is available for free on Andy McFadden's website. This is the Andy McFadden of Cider Press fame? The one and only. Yeah, Hard Pressed and AutoArc were competitors in their day. And Andy has released almost everything that he wrote back then for free. So you can download Hard Pressed version 1.02, written in June of 1993. There's no support for the product, obviously. 
and just as there wouldn't be if you bought auto arc on eBay. But if you do want auto arc, I am not really sure what the advantages one or the other would be. Buying it on eBay might be a better deal than buying it new, which you can still do because auto arc is actually sold by Syndicom for $25. Now is it still Syndicom or did Tony rename that as all his 16 sector? You know, that's a good question. Uh, Eric Shepard passed Syndicom over to Tony Diaz earlier this year, and Tony already had his own company called 16 Sector. And if you go to store.syndicom.com, it redirects to store.16sector.com, and the logo at the top of the page is still Syndicom. Hmm. I think perhaps there's still some integration to come that Tony is working on. Yeah, I remember talking to him briefly at Kansas Fest about the uh, acquisition and what he was going to do. And at the time, he wasn't sure if he was going to keep them as separate properties or, or combine them. So it'll be interesting to see. I think a lot of what 16 Sector sells is stuff that Tony has acquired the rights to or more likely developed himself, whereas Cinecom is largely stuff that Sheppy acquired the rights to over the years, which is not originally his. The stuff that is Sheppy's has now reverted back to being Sheppyware. Right. So maybe Tony wants to continue to keep that distinction and sell his stuff as 16 Sector. And it's just for domain management purposes that he's integrated the two URLs, if not the actual businesses. I don't know. Maybe we should get him on the show and ask. <laughs> again. <laughs> maybe he'll be driving by again. Right. You never know with Tony. Uh, or flying by. Flying. Yeah. And Kelvin, it looks like you have some software on the list too. Yes, yes, I noticed some ultra-rare software this time. Ooh. Unfortunately for your listeners, this auction will have expired by the time you hear this, but the software in question is the legendary Ultima 4 Quest of the Avatar. Ah, a good game. This uh, includes the original map, the boxes, all the original materials. It does not include the original price. <laughs> what is it going for? Starting bid of 125 and there apparently are no bids, and a buy-it-now price of $250. Wow. I mean, granted, it is nice to see the game with all of its original material. This is the full package. As a collector's item, I think it has more value than just the bits on the disc itself. Right. Still, for that price, I would expect the full package to still be in the original shrink wrap, and obviously you can tell from the picture f featured with the auction that this item has been opened. Yeah, possibly even played. <gasps> No. Well, you know, games like this are meant to be played, in my opinion. Still, I, I think if this item sells for the asking price, it's going to perpetuate that reputation that Apple II users want too much for their goods. Yes, certainly, certainly. A poster child of it. Yeah, there's a, a similar example of that phenomenon in another auction that just ended. This is an Apple IIGS award. It's a crystal paperweight uh, it's a you know three-dimensional apple you know, made of clear crystal. The description says it's just over a pound, so pretty light. And it is something that just sold about a week ago for a whopping $315. Wow. Now, as, as a, an award, you know, maybe this is something that was handcrafted for a small set of uh, prestigious developers or vendors and handed out in small quantities or given as a singular award in a contest. But from what I read, these things were basically a dime a dozen when they were made back in 86, and everybody had them. You know, almost every dealer got one for some reason or another. They may be rare nowadays, I don't know, but 
if this guy was selling it as a one of a kind, which he wasn't, but if the buyer thought it was, then I think he might have gotten gypped. Yeah, uh, part of that's eBay inflation. Part of it is that there may be you know a dime a dozen, but I you don't really see them that often on eBay, mm-hmm. at least not recently. So if you're looking for a, a 2GS collectible that's not something you plug into the 2GS and use, that maybe is a little bit you know on the more unusual side, I'd say that covers it. Three hundred and fifteen dollars is is excessive, but I mean I would love to have one of these, not at that price, but now that you mention it. Let's say that I was an executive or a CTO with a big oak desk in my corner office. I probably wouldn't want an Apple IIgs sitting on it like I have now in my dinky little cubicle. But, you know, a classy paperweight that looks like an Apple II is a way that I could represent my heritage and still maintain that executive air. Sure. Good thing I never have to worry about that happening. But if I was a big executive, I could tell you what I'd be driving to the office every day. And that would be my electric three-wheel custom car with an Apple IIc computer on board. What? It is an item that just sold on eBay for a mere $2,000. Apparently, this is a car that was created. I'm not exactly sure when. It is being sold on eBay. They list the vehicle identification number or the VIN so that you can do all your research about the history of the car. It's a fully electric car, and it has an Apple IIc in the dashboard so that you can document the performance of the car, probably, you know, the fuel economy and the like. I think I saw this car on Pimp My Ride. Is that a website? That's a TV show on MTV. They would take these, like, these old, rusted-out pieces of junk and, and fix them up and put hydraulics in them and huge sound systems and stuff like that. And TVs and barbecues and... <laughs> Swimming pools. Oh, God, I hope they haven't done that to this car. <laughs> I think they would have been a nicer job if they had. Well, it does say the car needs some work uh, to be roadworthy. The car will need a complete going over of all systems before anyone should attempt to drive it. That does not instill any confidence in me. But apparently this is being sold by the original owner. He says, I am the only owner of this car. So he must have had this for quite some time. Is he the only owner of the 2C? That I don't know. That's what matters. He doesn't give much indication as to the computer's working performance. Uh, the pictures of the car, from far away, it looks great, like your st- typical, unusually shaped uh, electrical vehicle of the future. But then you get a close-up of like the hydraulics and the wheels, and there is a lot of rust and disuse there. So yeah, this is definitely a fixer-upper. It's so neat to see Apple II computers being used in unusual contexts, though. Yeah, I suspect there are many 6502s in cars, as it was is a quite popular uh, processor for embedded work. Well, NASA used it in a lot of their flight computers in the in the early shuttles. Somebody should do a documentary about that. I wonder who that could be. Uh, one last thing I want to bring up on the uh, from eBay is something that I just found moments ago. It's being sold by a gentleman here in Massachusetts who I've encountered many times on eBay. He sells a variety of Apple II stuff. I would consider some of it to be overpriced, especially the copies of Juice GS that he has for sale. But speaking of newsletters, he is selling a copy of a newsletter I've never heard of, which I think is fascinating. It's called Apple Press, and it claims to be the official publication of the Boston Computer Society. I know this to be not just a Macintosh group, but also an Apple II group, because the the issue he is selling has the front page headline, Register Your Timeout Applications. And I can't think of what that would mean other than Apple II software. Also, inside, there is a new version of Protos on page 5. Where, where do you see that? Oh, if you can click on it. If you go down, you can click on it, and there's a larger version. Click to view supersized image. Oh, you're looking at the table of contents. Yes. 
I see it. Yeah, you're right. There's a complete list of timeout applications, new Apple II hardware, Apple II industry happenings. It looks like there's some handwritten markings at the top saying, please return. So maybe this was a library copy or an archival copy somewhere. No, I just recently became aware of the... I don't know if this is the same group evolved. It's called the Boston Macintosh User Group, or BMUG, that's, or BMAC. Probably isn't the same thing. The Boston Computer Society, I don't know anything about them. I need, I should do some research, because I'm really interested in knowing what sort of Apple II support was available locally. I bet if you bought that newsletter, it would tell you who they are. The, the subtitle under Apple Press says the newsletter of Apple slash Boston, the Apple II group of the BCS. Hmm. Yeah, it was not uncommon for SIGs to exist within a larger user group back then. Right. But as far as I know, this is not a publication that's being archived at Apple II scans or elsewhere on the web. No, it, it's not. And if this wasn't Drake's retro video game shop, I'd probably buy it because I have a whole collection of uh, like Ravenstein uh, Apple user group newsletters that I was going to scan, and this would go nicely with that. But you're predisposed against buying stuff from Drake? I object to his prices. I'm, I don't know. I'm almost tempted to buy just this one so I can get the masthead and look at who was responsible for publishing it, try to track them down and see if there are still other copies available, maybe original digital files. Sure. Hmm. Well, he does take offers. <laughs> he does? Actually, no, he doesn't on this one. He doesn't a lot of... Well, he does on a lot of his stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm surprised that he doesn't on this one. But Ten bucks firm. Yeah, I mean, I made an offer on that microzine lot I mentioned earlier, which is how I bought that. But this is ten bucks firm plus four eighty two shipping. Even though I could go pick it up, he's just a couple of towns over. Hmm. Well, whether or not we ever unearth more of this, it is nonetheless a fascinating aspect of history and one that has not really been documented. Boston Computer Society actually has its own wiki page. Oh, and there's quite a bit of information. Um, uh, about their history. It's a, a rich one. Apparently, Apple announced products at their meetings, uh, major product announcements, including the East Coast release of the Macintosh in 1984. Hmm. A lot of famous members, Dan Bricklin, uh, Dan Filstra, Bill Gates, Mitch Kapoor. So, yeah, there's quite a, quite a bit there. Yeah, it looks like Apple Press, they had several monthly publications, but Apple Press was a quarterly one. Yes. Which means that if we ever get our hands on it, there won't be probably that many to archive. Right. Well, thanks for that heads up. I'll have to look into this more. Old or new, it's still cool in Retro Views. So since we have such a prolific programmer on the show this month, it would seem remiss of us to not have some technical discussion on this episode. So for our retro views, we're going to be talking to Kelvin about his favorite programming languages. Unfortunately, Mike and I aren't really all that much of programmers, so Kelvin has agreed to dumb down his discussion to our level. He's going to keep it nice and basic. That's right, basic. I'm, I'm really not a big fan of basic. Basic is generally knocked because it encourages spaghetti programming. That's true. I don't think it has to. It doesn't have to. AppleSoft and Integer Basic with their line numbers and very poor flow control, they require spaghetti programming. It's the only flow control you have looping with a for next and you have go to. And that's basically it. No pun intended. No pun intended. Basic is probably the language that I have the most experience in. And it's what taught me a lot of basic, no pun intended, programming concepts. 
I just recently signed up for a PHP course, and I'm looking forward to learning that. And I'm hoping I'll find out that BASIC hasn't taught me such bad habits that I'm not able to make the transition to a more modern language. But but you, you talking about spaghetti code has me a little bit concerned. Yeah, well, unfortunately, PHP is a terrible language as well, so you're in good company. <laughs> Great, thanks. Okay, but as I said, BASIC, it doesn't have to be doesn't have to be terrible. MD basic, MD meaning Morgan Davis, for example, is a, it's interesting in that it's not a basic itself, but it's sort of, you could consider it a preprocessor for AppleSoft basic, or you could consider it its own separate language, which compiles down to AppleSoft basic and uses AppleSoft as sort of a virtual machine like Java does. What is it about different basics that differentiate them? The only basic I've ever really used is AppleSoft. And I remember as a kid, I'd be downloading these programs from the web saying that they were written in basic and I'd try to run them on the Apple II. And of course they wouldn't work because they were written for you know visual basic or some other flavor of basic. But what is it that varies among the different flavors? Well, more modern basic languages, generally they get rid of the line numbers. So line numbers go away completely and they have much better flow control. So you can say, while this condition, do this, or repeat until this condition. Whereas with AppleSoft Basic, it's very line-oriented, very primitive, really. It's, you're limited. There were system constraints of uh, low memory. There was a limited amount of memory, so there were certainly trade-offs that had to be made in order to fit into that memory. The basics that you're talking about, though, those all are for the Apple II. So what makes, you know, is there one that's better than another? MD Basic, it's a GS program, nice desktop GS program. It takes this nicely formatted, clean, basic code that's more similar to basic code on more modern platforms, and it compiles it down to very optimized AppleSoft code, which you can run on any Apple II computer, as long as you have AppleSoft on it. Another interesting option is McCall Advanced Basic, uh, which was reclassified as freeware a while ago. There's a 2GS version, which only runs on the 2GS. There's also an Apple II version, which of course does not require a 2GS. They both use a more modern basic dialect with the better flow control. The line numbers are optional, I believe, for uh, compatibility with uh, AppleSoft. You can import your AppleSoft. And they both compile down to actual native code, so you generally get a speed increase. That's right, because you can compile code or you can interpret code, right? Uh, yes, exactly. And uh, McCall Advanced Basic, the GS version, actually has support for the Apple IIGS toolbox. So you can make desktop applications hmm. if you're so inclined to. Um, unfortunately, when I was testing it with uh, System 601, it didn't quite work. Any idea why that was? I did not look into it very much, but these were programs that were written a long time ago before System 601. So they may have suffered from bit rot a little bit. Now, I thought, this is my own ignorance speaking, that GSoft Basic by Mike Westerfield at the Byteworks was the first version of Basic to have access to the GS Toolbox. But you're telling me that there was another one. Uh, yes, McCall Advanced Basic did have access to the 2GS Toolbox. Uh, the GSoft, GSoft had much cleaner access to the Toolbox as 
using the toolbox generally requires more advanced structures, uh, data structures and memory. For example, if you were going to describe a book, you would have, you know, the number of pages, maybe the year it was published, and the name of the book, the name of the author. And if you had a structure, you could hold all four or five variables in that one place. And traditionally, basics, AppleSoft, for example, you have strings, and you have numbers, and you have arrays of numbers, and that's it. There's no higher level structures. In the toolbox, it really requires these higher level structures. So GSoft uh, has support for these higher level structures. It's it's a lot more like uh, Pascal than basic, really, if you're looking at it. It would almost look like an interpreted Pascal than the AppleSoft you're familiar with. Now, I had won a copy of GSoft Basic in a Genie chat room back in the day, and I played with it a little bit. If I recall, even though it was a 16-bit application, it's not what I would call a desktop application because there were no windows. It was more like an 80-column text terminal. Is, is that correct? The GSoft shell itself, yes, is a text application. Um, but you can use toolbox calls and make your own desktop application, but it's up to you. But in McCall Basic, when you said that's a desktop application, that, so that actually has like the menu bar and windows and everything? The shell where the program runs is a text application. Oh, okay. So there is no, what I would describe as a desktop application, way to write basic code, unless you're doing it like in a text editor, saving it as a text file, and then executing it from the AppleSoft prompt. Uh, that is correct. For the last... 14 years, I've spent more time in a Macintosh environment than in the Apple II. And people like Sheppy are doing cool stuff to bring some of that functionality back. Like he just released SideClick 2.0, which adds right-clicking and wheel scrolling to different windows in the 2GS. And then he released Trasher, which lets you uh, push Command-Delete to delete files from the Finder. For me to get back into programming on the Apple II, I would really like an environment that I'm familiar with, which in this case would be a full menu bar in Windows. And it doesn't sound like if I want to use a familiar language, which in my case would be basic, I really won't have an environment like that on the Apple II to do that in. Well, MD Basic is a GUI application, so you can edit it, edit your programs in this nice text editor. But then since it compiles down to AppleSoft to actually run and test it, you need to drop into AppleSoft. Okay, well, I guess that's you know a good compromise. I'll have to take a look at that. Mike, have you done any basic programming? Well, I did a little basic stuff. Uh, mostly what I knew about basic was what I entered from Nibble Magazine mm -hmm. and ran those programs. I was more interested in assembly language. I never got around to learning it well enough to program myself, to program anything uh, on my own. It was kind of more like, a, you know, when you're starting to learn a foreign language and you can you can follow a conversation even though you can't really speak the language yourself. Right. Uh, that's kind of where I got with assembly language. I could sit and follow somebody else's code and figure out what was going on, but and which was useful for boot code tracing, uh, which I did a lot of, but I didn't actually get into it enough to be able to speak it myself. Did you ever use Integer Basic? I did, yeah. ByteWorks has an integer basic, which supports many old integer basic programs, uh, not any that use machine language or other weird tricks. Hmm. But it compiles it into uh, native uh, Apple IIgs code. Well, that might be fun to play with. Yeah, it's fun to play with. Uh, mostly it was released sort of as a 
an example of how to write a programming language. The book that came with it taught the fundamentals of writing a programming language, uh, much like you would expect in a college CS class, except much, much easier to understand. Sure. And much more useful. Well, that's really cool. I haven't done basic programming in a long time, but knowing that there are so many options out there that I've never explored before makes me want to get back into it. So thank you for that overview. Yeah, thanks. That was very interesting. I hope you learned something. How well do you know your Apple soundtrack? See if you can name the game. So it's been about two months since we had a Name the Game contest, so I can understand if folks may not remember which audio clip we're going to be identifying this month. So to refresh your memories, here it is. Who can name that game? Kelvin? Mike? I am stumped. Oh, come on. Mike, what, what about you? I don't know that it's Choplifter. Oh my god, you're right. It's Choplifter. <laughs> Yay! SMRT. I'm, I'm so good at guessing. Yes, it is Choplifter. We gave that answer away, and we had several more entries than usual. So much to my relief, everybody who entered that month's contest got it right. And who's our winner this month, Mike? This month's winner is Sal Muglarizzi. Congratulations, Sal. All right, Sal. I hope I pronounced it properly. And I'll provide email after the show if you want to send me hate mail for getting it wrong. Your prize is a $20 gift certificate to the Juice GS online store. Good for back issues, subscriptions, concentrates, and uh, CDs. I'll be sending you that code shortly. And now this clears the way for another Name the Game contest. And here's this month's audio. Do you know the name of that game? I will if you tell me. We're not doing that again. This month, you have to send your guesses to name the game at open-apple.net. Of all those who enter, we will draw one random name who will win a very special prize. Tell us about it, Mike. Well, this month's prize is a an Apple II software cassette. It is, in fact, Bob Bishop's Bomber game. And, and this one's special because uh, when I was at Kansas Fest 2011 this, this year, I had Bob autograph it. So the winner will get a copy of that. Now, I don't have a cassette player to verify that the software on it works. So this is kind of more of a collector's thing. Good luck playing. Wow, that's a very generous gift. Thank you for donating that. Sure. I'm sure if you had gotten a sign at Kansas Fest, then turned around and sold it at the vendor fair, you probably could have gotten something for that. Um, I could, but... Uh, Damn it. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> There's eBay. Yeah. Speaking of eBay, you had mentioned Ultima 4, Kelvin, and Ultima 4, along with Ultima 3, 2, and 1, recently became available on the good old games network, which is kind of like uh, Steam. It's where you can buy old games and run them in a native modern environment uh, legally. Unfortunately, most of those are the DOS version. But uh, sometimes they're okay. Yeah, looking at the listing for Ultima, it says that it's for Windows only. Does that mean that if I buy this, there's no way to run it on a Mac? Good question. What about like uh, DOSBox or something like that? A couple episodes ago, you mentioned DOSBox. And there is a very nice, very lickable, as they say, uh, Macintosh front end called Boxer 
which makes it generally very painless to use these old DOS games. Good Old Games actually has Ultima 4 for free. Oh, nice. Nice, yes, but it's a Windows installer, which doesn't play with DOSBox. So you can either install it on a lesser computer running Windows, or if you go to ultimaforever.com, which is the official EA Bioware website, you can download Ultima 4 as a zip archive, which runs directly in, in, in Boxer or DOSBox. They even have a link to DOSBox. Wow, so they are really supporting the free distribution of this game. It looks that way, yes. And you don't get a cloth map, you don't get a box, but you can download them as images. For cheaper than, you know, $250. Well, free, yes. That sort of stands in contrast to the way uh, Electronic Arts was behaving earlier about uh, taking down Ultima 4-related websites. Yes, well, get it while you can. Yep. Yeah, when I first saw that Ultima 4 was available for free from good old games, I thought that would be a limited time offer. But that announcement was made on September 1st, and today it's September 30th, and it's still available for free. So maybe it's just this calendar month. But given the fact that it's available for free directly from EA, I'd be surprised if good old games started charging for it. Yes, and I believe there's a couple other websites that are allowed to distribute it as well. Well, they do charge for the, the 1, 2, 3, and 4, 5, 6 packages. Yes, $6. You get you know, the one package comes with the first three Ultimas, and the second one comes with the second three Ultimas. Now, I remember Brian Weiser back in June. He had bought an Ultima trilogy on eBay that we talked about. I wonder how he would feel knowing that they're so much more affordably available from this service. Probably he would say that it's inauthentic and he's happy with what he got. And then he would make some Firefly reference. <laughs> right. Now, let's see. There is another classic Apple II game that recently became available again. Would you be referring to Defender of the Crown on the iPad? Uh, as a matter of fact, I am. Uh, how about that? Yes, uh, according to Touch Arcade, uh, Cinemaware, who apparently is back in business, I don't know if it's the same group of people that it used to be, but they are re-releasing many of their old classics on the iPad, which includes Defender of the Crown. I know that Cinemaware was kind of more of a more a, an Amiga company for a lot of their stuff, but they did release that one for the 2GS. Uh, so that might be of interest to some 2GS gamers who have iPads. It looks like it's basically an Amiga emulator, which only runs one application, being Defender of the Crown. Yeah, it is. It's it's a version of Win UAE, which is a, a popular Amiga emulator. This is this is the Amiga version of the game, not the 2GS. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the graphics look a little bit better to me than the 2GS version, although the sound is clearly inferior. I remember playing that game on the 8-bit Nintendo Entertainment System, and it must not have come with a manual because there were parts of that game I just could not figure out. Like especially the, uh, I think there was a field warfare where you have like siege engines and everything. Do you, do you remember that stage or that level? I've never played the game, so I don't know. What about you, Kelvin? Earlier this week, I did play for journalistic purposes only, of course. And I started playing and had to read the instructions after five minutes, which is always a bad sign. Even after reading the instructions, I didn't get to, um, anywhere. <laughs> It, it seems to involve a lot of clicking, and that kind of concerns me on the on the iPad version. There's a video of it being played, and seems to involve a lot of clicking there too. So I, I that's the only thing that's prevented me from buying it. The excessive amount of clicking. Yes, it's a game that's designed for the mouse, and now you're sticking it in an emulator on an iPad or an iPhone. And trying to do this fake mouse thing, which it looks like it might work, but I don't trust that I would be happy with it. 
Yeah, I think there was a remake or even a reboot of this franchise a couple of years ago. I, I'm pretty sure the publisher sent me a press copy of Defender of the Crown for PlayStation 2. I never played it, but I don't seem to recall that it did well. It doesn't seem to have stopped them from trying to still continue to milk it, though. Well, $3 is certainly a lot cheaper than it was 20 years ago. But in iOS prices, that's a fortune. <laughs> yes, it is. And Mike, there's a, another iOS game that you've been playing? Actually, before we move on, I, I think I need to correct something I said earlier. I'd said that it was a WinUAE emulator, and it looks like it's actually something called iAmiga emulator. Okay. So, yeah. Well, and that's that's produced by ManoMio systems do you really think we have any amiga listeners uh no but i'm sure we'll get email anyway so what else have you been playing on the ios on the ios yeah what <laughs> what the ipad no uh, the ios i see uh, well i finally got around to installing um uh iBasic which I think we, I don't know if we mentioned it a while back. I know it was posted on uh, a2central.com by Andy Malloy. iBasic is a basic interpreter that comes with a bunch of uh, Eamon games. Oh, neat. Yeah. It's it's kind of weird, though, because the, the choice of name iBasic is sort of strange because you don't actually get to the basic interface. You can't do any programming or anything in basic. But if you're looking to play some Eamon games with that sort of retro feel to it, then it's definitely worth checking out. Yeah, With a name like iBasic, I would kind of expect it to be an integer basic interpreter. That's not the case. It's probably buried under there, but as a, as a user, you can't get to it. And then uh, that's probably a concession that they had to make for Apple to allow it in the App Store. I would think that a text adventure, which involves a lot of typing, might not do well on a small iOS device. Is that not the case? Well, I don't know about the iPhone because I don't have one of those, but uh, I've gotten kind of used to typing on the iPad, so it's it's really not all that bad. And if you have a, a keyboard, then it's definitely an easy experience. That's true. Oh, speaking of Eamon, there's a gentleman in Norway named Jimmy Mayer who, on his blog, philfire.net, has been publishing some remarkable stuff about the Apple II, uh, Steve Wozniak, Steve Jobs, Eamon Adventures, Hunt the Wumpus, Text Adventures, Interactive Fiction. Oh, yeah, I've been reading that. That's great stuff. Yeah, it's so in-depth. It's so detailed. He doesn't cite his sources, which I find a little concerning, but he's published on this subject previously, so I assume he has plenty of notes that he's researched. Uh, it, it's really in-depth stuff, and I highly recommend it. You know, I, I, I wish I had known there was somebody out there capable of writing on this subject at this level because I would have asked him to write it for ChooseGS instead of his blog. Well, maybe you can flag him down for something else. Well, I've been in touch with him, and I've sent him a uh, copy of JuiceGS, which ran a cover story about interactive fiction earlier this year. I'm hoping that he'll have some insight into that, or at least some appreciation for it. But yeah, the links to that will definitely be in the show notes. One last gaming subject I want to bring up, and I, I think this goes back to an email discussion I had with Kelvin a year or two ago, but I, I couldn't find it in my archives at the moment. Last month, I actually finished the game Portal 2 for the Xbox 360, and just today, they finished releasing the soundtrack as a free download. All 64 tracks are now available. Uh, Portal, if if you haven't played it before or heard about it on the Retro Computing Roundtable, is a great first-person puzzle game for Xbox, PS3, PC, and Mac. I highly recommend it. 
the reason I bring this up on Apple II Podcast is because there are a couple of different 2D versions of Portal. Uh, some are for the Mac, some are Flash, you play them online. Uh, regardless, they're very, very crude graphics, but the essence of the gameplay is still very similar. And I seem to recall that I asked you, Kelvin, why we can't have a game like that on the Apple II. Why can't, yes. why can't we port Portal to the Apple II, as Chris Lackey challenged us to do on this show back in May? And I, I seem to recall you were very pessimistic about that happening. And I'd like for you to re-explain to me why this, why this won't happen. Oh, you're, you're putting me on the spot. Well, fortunately, when you mentioned it last May, I was listening. My ears started burning. I checked my archives, and my comment was on the screen size for the text, um, 80 by 24 on the Apple II, or 40 by 24 in some cases, uh, versus the larger screen size used in the uh, text portal. But but what about like the Flash version of the game that's played online? That doesn't use text per se. It uses graphics. So and we have a higher resolution than eighty by twenty four for graphics on the Apple. That's Apple. right. I would recommend to you that this would be a good project if you want to practice your basic programming. Do you think this is, that basic is the best language to approach something like this in? No, probably not. <laughs> I... <laughs> so you're setting me up to fail. Thank you. I think on a stock Apple II basic would be the wrong wrong language if you are running in an emulator at 40 or 50 or maybe a few hundred megahertz basic would be fine <laughs> right but i mean i've seen stuff that people like brett victor have done on the apple 2gs for graphics based action games or it seems to me like the apple 2gs is capable of something as crude as a 2d portal Yes, I, I am inclined to agree that the uh, like the Flash version, something like that, could be run on the 2GS. I do believe so. I don't believe I have time to do it. <laughs> no, probably not. You have other endeavors, as you said, more ans ancillary and utilitarian, but definitely ones that are necessary to advance this community. Uh, yes, indeed. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the tools you do. I can't wait to see the next ones. I hope there's somebody out there who can do something like Portal. I mean, you know, I enjoyed the Xbox version, and I don't need to play it on my Apple II when I have the Xbox version, but it would just be so neat to say, you know, hey, we ported Wolf 3D to the Apple II. We didn't stop there. We're still getting today's greatest hits. Here's Portal. Anyway, that's my dream. As for me, though, I have exhausted all my tricks. I have nothing left for this show tonight. Oh. <laughs> I, I do have a surprise up my sleeve. Oh. oh. I have a special announcement for all... Your listeners, anybody who's still listening at this point, <laughs> Silver Platter, which I'm sure you're aware of. Have you ever used it? I haven't, but I know that it is a uh, TCP IP web server for GSOS, right? That's exactly correct. It runs in an, an, it's a new desk accessory. It can run in the background while you're doing other things. It's a great way to get files from your 2GS to some other computer. As a special deal for all your listeners, it is now free. Really? Yes. Wow. It used to be a commercial software sold by uh, Cindycom. It's now free for your listeners and everybody else in the world for that. Great. Well, thank you. That's Kevin. awesome. Thank you. Where, where can our listeners and nobody else find this? That's right. Just our listeners. In the show notes. Okay. <laughs> we'll have a link there, so keep an eye out. Well, that's great news. Yeah, th this will make it much easier for people to move files to and from the Apple II. So thanks, Kelvin. That's great. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> Neat. It's not often that we get surprises on the show. That's really appreciated. Yeah, no kidding. 
Well, there's no way to top that, so I think we should just call it a night. Uh, Kelvin, thank you very much for taking time out of your day. I understand you're doing some tailgating tomorrow. I hope you have a fun weekend. I hope I survive it. <laughs> you got to be around long enough to hear the show published. That's true. Well, Mike, it's been good chatting with you. And you too. Thank you, Kelvin, for coming on. It's my pleasure. And this isn't quite the same as talking to you, Mike, from across the room. Uh, you know, but 2,000 miles is okay, too. I think that's a comfortable distance. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and thank you to everybody who has listened to our show. Uh, if you have any questions, concerns, complaints, or feedback, you can send it to podcast at open-apple.net. We're always listening. Especially let us know what you think of the Name the Game contest, not only your entry, but whether or not this contest is an interesting part of the show and one that we should continue to have. We're always looking for ways to improve or maybe even shorten the show hmm. and to make it more easy for you to consume. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll talk to you next month. Good night, Kelvin. Good night. Good night, everybody. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. Historically, when Apple II software that was copy protected was cracked, the, I'm sorry, I was going to say cracker, but that sounds racist.